Thanks to Harry's for supporting Industry Focus. Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades, they'll give you a trial set for free when you sign up at harrys.com slash fool. All you have to do is pay for shipping. Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, January 26th, and we're talking about some of the interesting storylines in China. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Fool.com's Danny Venna on Skype. Danny, how's it going? It's not too bad. Dylan, how are you? I'm doing okay. We are both caffeinated. We are both ready to roll. Um, the tour that was just here at Full HQ has left, so I'm a little bit less self-conscious about any mistakes I may make as we're taping the show. Uh, but uh, but it's good. And and I and I plug that tour to say, listeners, if you're ever in the area, shoot us a note. We're always happy to have people come in and check out the show. You know, even though I just said it makes us self-conscious, it keeps us on our A game. That's what I like to think. Keep you on your toes. Exactly. So, Danny, today we're going to be talking about China, specifically looking at two different storylines and which what each one shows about the dynamics between U.S. companies, the government, and domestic companies in the country. And the inspiration for this show came from a couple articles that you wrote, so it only really made sense to have you on. Well, I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. It's always fun to talk about these investments. <laughs> and listeners, if you would like any of those pieces, just write in and we'll send them along. Um, I think the case for why companies want to be in China is probably pretty clear at this point, but it's worth throwing a couple data points out there. So, you know, if there's any naysayers that are like, oh, like, why are they interested in China? Give me a couple stats here, Danny. Okay, well, China has the largest population of any country on earth, for starters. Um, they have, at last count, an estimated 1.37 billion uh, consumers there. And so that, that's that's a pretty large percentage of, of, you know, the global population that, you know, a lot of these companies want to tap into. And that's a population that is increasingly coming online, right? Uh, it is. In fact, uh, China has Internet users that number, you know, estimates vary, but somewhere between 700 and 750 million uh, Internet users. And then you also have the rising middle class in China. This is kind of a mega trend that we've seen over the last decade get a lot of press. Basically, you have a huge opportunity here. The problem is that, particularly as an American company, you can't just port over your operations like you would for most countries. And I think that's especially true if you're in the business of information. Um, and that's really, that's really come to light in the last couple of years with some major companies, namely Google and Facebook, um, trying to get their way in or eventually having to leave due to issues and disagreements with the Chinese government. That's true. Um, Google was actually in China for a long time and left the company, or sorry, left the country voluntarily, they say, uh, back in 2010. Um, they cited several reasons for that, uh, one of which was they said they were no longer willing to censor the results that Chinese consumers saw on Google's uh, internet site. Um, so when consumers got on there and they would search for, you know, things, there were a lot of things related to the Chinese government, the outside world that China said, we don't want, you know, searchers to see that. Um, another reason was that uh, while Google was in the country, they said that they experienced a sophisticated hack of their servers. Um, and one of the things that was targeted was the email accounts of some human rights activists. 
and Google essentially said that that was the last straw and they ported over their search results to their uh, Hong Kong operation and that essentially banned them from the country. And rather than leave voluntarily, Facebook was actually banned, in, uh, I think, back in 2009, right? Uh, that's right. In fact, Facebook was actually in the country as well. And it turned out that there were some activists in the country um, that decided to use Facebook as a coordination tool um, so that they could get folks to and from these anti-government protests. The government... Uh, you know, looked poorly on that and they just shut Facebook out. And and Instagram was similarly shut out of the country back in 2014. So these two major companies have not had a presence in one of the world's largest economies. And some recent comments from some government officials, I think were kind of coy in that they talked about how, you know, as the Chinese government were, you know, happy to have these businesses up and running in China, of course, you know, for them to come back, they'd have to be doing it under the right conditions, right? Right. Uh, the uh, a government official was speaking at the um, Internet Governance Forum last month and said that you know these companies were welcome to come back in China. We'd welcome them with open arms as long as they abide by Chinese uh, laws and regulations. And what exactly um, and are those? Of course, you know, can be onerous. Yeah. What what exactly are those laws and regulations? I have a list of them here, and, and some of them are pretty interesting. Um, first of all, you know how uh, there is a lot of anonymity on the Internet. Mm. You can create a fake Facebook account. You don't need to use your real name on Twitter. Um, that's not the case in China. In China, you have to sign up with your real name and provide verification of your identity uh, in order to use social media sites. Um, similarly, with uh, news programs that are on the Internet, um, they're required to have editorial staff that have been pre-approved by government officials. Anytime that there's an Internet company in the country, um, they're required to first have their data servers on the ground in China. And then in addition to that, they're required to keep all of the information gathered uh, about Chinese citizens has to remain in the country and they have to specifically ask for permission to transmit any of that information out of China. When we're talking about streaming companies and, you know, streaming is huge, you may recall that uh, late in 2016, uh, Netflix bowed out of its intentions to, you know, enter the Chinese market. And one of the reasons that they cited was um, the government regulatory environment. What specifically about that is relevant to them, Danny? Well, uh, streaming companies are required to have no more than 30% of their content be from foreign sources. And again, they, the other same requirements, they have to uh, you know, keep the data in the country, et cetera, other, other um, items that I just cited. Uh, but that's kind of tough for a company like Netflix, where um, you know, if they're limited to 30% of their content being from foreign sources, 
that's not really going to give them a lot of entry into that market. No, especially for especially for a company that is focusing so much on original content, right? Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, a couple of other uh, items. The Chinese government has banned the use of VPNs, which is a virtual private network, something that Internet users um, favorited for getting around the Great Firewall, which was the 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 things that the Chinese government used essentially to keep out foreign content. Um, and finally, uh, the companies in China that accept money from advertisers are required to verify the identity of those advertisers and their business credentials. So there's a lot going on in China that we don't have to deal with here in the United States. And unpacking a lot of that and just kind of getting a sense of what these regulations are driving at I think you clearly have some efforts there to maintain the government's control over what gets said and what gets in and out of China. But you look at some of these, I mean, that that content one in particular seems like a kind of a protectionist measure, you know, that, that's doing something to preserve, uh, you know, local businesses. But um, I think one of the very interesting ones, you know, we've centered so much of this conversation on how regulations have impacted uh, these U.S. firms. The reality is these regulations have also had a pretty big impact on the digital ad market in China, specifically when you look at that bullet point about companies being required to verify the identity of advertisers. That came from a place where we were kind of in this Wild West era of digital ad spend in China, and and there were a lot of um, kind of unseemly businesses getting really good placement on some paid posts and paid search results. That's true. Uh, in uh, 2016, um, Baidu, which is the search giant in China, sometimes called the Google of China, got itself into trouble because a 21-year-old student there um, died after receiving an experimental treatment um, that he found on Google search. Now, since then, uh, Chinese officials have updated their uh, advertising requirements um, and they have, uh, you know, they, they're really strict now on anything having to do with medical treatments, with prescriptions, um, unlicensed hospitals. They've banned. There were a lot of fake medical groups on there, people who claim to be support groups for people who are experiencing certain medical conditions when, in fact, um, they were uh drug companies or even unlicensed experimental treatment companies who were trying to get users to buy their product. And earlier you said Google search kind of colloquially. I believe the actual search result was on a Baidu search result, correct? That uh, that uh, that cancer treatment? Yes, absolutely. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. <laughs> which, which is a testament to Baidu's standing in China, <laughs> given that that's the association you have there. Um, these regulations, though, uh, were beyond just, okay, we need to kind of reshape how we're looking at this. Um, there were also some fines that were levied, you know, not very big ones, but they were all targeted at the really big internet players in China. That's true, Dylan. Uh, you know, the Chinese government has gradually been trying to, you know, seize control of the internet. Now, obviously, for a long time, they have already had been able to effectively ban most of the content that comes in from, you know, foreign countries. 
and what they were trying to do, like you mentioned earlier, the kind of Wild West mentality that was going on the Internet. It was it was a free for all there. And the government decided to clamp down on that. Um, and and they have their regulations are, are pretty specific um, in, in a kind of a broad way. They say that they're uh, disallowing the spread of information uh, of violence and terror, uh, false rumors, fake news, pornography, and other information that jeopardizes national security, public safety, and social order. So there are some pretty specific things, but then there's also those broad-based ones that they throw in there so that if they want to, they can go, yeah, this falls under here, so we're going to get you on that. And you look at these regulations, and I think that the the expectation when you when you think of a, a government that is kind of known for censorship and kind of walling off itself you know from the world is that these are all kind of uh, control oriented that they are to preserve the kind of status quo but you know looking specifically at the medical element here with um, that really unfortunate episode with the cancer treatments and some of the other uh, health form things that you mentioned you know some of these regulations are really good for consumers. You know, these, these are things that needed to happen uh, in order for uh, the digital ad market to kind of take the next step and for people to be kind of on the hook for what they're pushing people towards, um, you know, in, in terms of uh, in terms of treatments and in terms of information. You know, there's a responsibility there that all of these platform businesses have. Right. And, you know, honestly, if you look at some of the clampdowns that have been happening in the United States in uh, European Union um, regarding companies like Facebook, and there have been clampdowns there. There's a lot of talk about fake news. They're, you know, trying to ban pornography. They're trying to uh, keep terrorists from using them as communication tools. So a lot of that is the same. But as you mentioned, you know, there's also some protectionist measures there, um, and. Well, China is known for favoring, you know, their their hometown companies when it comes to regulations. And we're going to talk about that on the second half of the show. Uh, to wrap this part of the conversation, though, uh, I would be surprised to see Facebook in particular in China anytime soon. Uh, actually, news broke earlier this month that Wang Li Moser, uh, Facebook's liaison to Beijing, just stepped down. And this is someone who had been putting in years of work. Uh, you know, in addition to Mark Zuckerberg, you know, uh, learning to speak the language and making all of these appearances in the country, um, they'd done quite a bit on the policy side to try to work with the Chinese government and find some middle ground that they could, you know, eventually enter the country kind of on everyone's terms. Um, her stepping down to me says that that's probably not happening anytime soon. You know, Facebook is having enough trouble as it is. Um, in, you know, democracies, uh, countries that allow free and open press, free exchange of ideas, um, you know, anybody can say virtually anything that they want to on social media sites. Um, and they're still having problems with, you know, terrorists using the platform to communicate, um, stories about fake news, uh, issues that have come up recently having to do with uh, the, the platform being cited as people spending too much time there tend to be depressed, you know, and if he's dealing with all that in the rest of the world, I can't imagine uh, how much trouble he would have in a country like China. 
there's a lot on Mark Zuckerberg's plate right now, safe to say. Um, Danny, you hinted at some of the dynamics between uh, foreign companies and maybe entrenched domestic companies getting a little support from the government. We're going to talk about that on the second half of the show. That's another really interesting storyline in China right now. Before we get over there, though, just want to thank Harry's for supporting our podcast. If you're listening to IF, it means you're probably money-minded. One way that I am always trying to help my budget is by adjusting the purchases I make all the time. Did you know Harry's can save you about $100 a year if you're a frequent shaver? That's practically a share of Shopify right there, just in the savings from your razors. Harry's is all about a great shave at a fair price, which is why 3 million guys have switched to Harry's. They stripped out all the unnecessary features, no vibrating handle, no heating blades, no 15 lubricating strips. Harry's focused on delivering customers one perfect razor at an amazing price. A good shave comes down to good blades. Because Harry's owns the factory, they're able to deliver amazing quality blades for just $2 compared to the $4 you pay at the drugstore. And all their products are backed by a 100% quality guarantee. Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades, they'll give you their trial shave set for free. All you have to do is sign up at harrys.com fool and pay for shipping. That set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel, which I'm particularly fond of, and a travel blade cover. To get your free trial set, go to harrys.com fool. That's harrys.com fool. Okay, so Danny, big tech's trouble in China is fairly well documented. I think it gets a lot of press. You told me, though, about the battle for the big screen in China, and this is a story that I was kind of surprised to hear. Well, you know, I, I was kind of surprised when I heard it, but if you step back and think about it for a moment, the uh, propensity for the Chinese government to favor companies that originated in China is is well documented. Um, so it shouldn't be too much of a surprise um, if they should favor a hometown favorite. Um, now, you may have heard of IMAX. IMAX is, uh, you know, one of the largest um, theater companies in the world. They create the giant premium big screen format uh, that a lot of folks go to the movies and see their, um, you know, blockbusters. Um, and IMAX already does business in China. Um, they control about 68% of IMAX China. Uh, they spun off their Chinese film business uh, or their Chinese screen business several years ago. Um, in 2015. Um, now, China is the second largest market in the world in terms of box office, um, behind only the United States. Um, it's also important to note that uh, China has seen significant ticket sales growth um, over the last few years. Now, there's a company in China called the China Film Digital Giant Screen Company, which if you were trying to do a really um, descriptive uh, definition of what IMAX is, it would come out very similar to that. <laughs> that, that, that company description almost sounds like a front. Like it's, it's so vanilla in, in its description of what the company does uh, that it, it practically sounds illegitimate. Not to say that it is. It, it is a re very real <laughs> giant screen company and they are in the theater business. But you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I, like I said, that's why I mentioned it. Um, now, they decided that um, 
here we go. So the, the government gave them a mandate um, to become the largest premium, large, largest premium format brand in the country. Um, and they believe that they can overtake IMAX in ticket sales by 2019. And you have to imagine that a company that gets a government mandate from a government that is notoriously involved in uh, you know the, the commerce in its country um, is probably going to be well on its path to achieving that. That that's not not a bad assumption. Um, <laughs> and what they're doing to to achieve that is pretty interesting. In fact, the uh, the chairman's quote was, "Our top priority is expansion, not profitability." That's kind of taking a page from Jeff Bezos right there. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Um, so this company, the China Film Digital Giant Screen Company, um, they allow theater owners to keep a larger percentage of the ticket revenue than what IMAX does. And then IMAX has several different ways that they deal with theater owners, um, you know, because putting in an IMAX system is a large cash outlay, big amount of capital up front. Um, they will either let them, the theater owners, to pay for the system up front, or they have what they call a joint revenue sharing arrangement, which is they say, we will front you the theater. We'll put the projection system into your theater, and you can pay us back over time with a percentage of your ticket sales. Um, and this Chinese company um, charges just a flat fee for installation and significantly lower than what the theater owner would pay for an IMAX system. But then you get what you pay for. Now, Danny, you follow IMAX quite a bit. Is this something that has you a little bit worried? You, know, you talked about how uh, you know China is the world's second largest market for the box office behind only the United States, and they have a fairly major stake in IMAX China. Is this something that concerns you at all as an investor? Um, I would be foolish not to be concerned about it. Um, so far, it has not been enough. Um, someone making a statement like that in and of itself is not enough to make me sell my IMAX shares. I am holding my shares. Um, but that's something that bears watching um, because the Chinese government basically can do what it wants. It's their country. And if they wanted to, you know, promote this other company ahead of IMAX, if they wanted to tell their consumers that, you know, this is the big bad Western devil, uh, you know, it, it can cause problems. And the, the people going to see the movies might think twice about going against something that has, you know, tacit government approval. Yeah, and just operationally, you know, it can be a little bit easier to get favorable financing if you are, you know, the hometown team, so to speak. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm I'm not concerned about it yet, but I'm definitely watching it. And I think this example is worth highlighting just because, uh, you know, we think so much about these kind of super big multinationals that we read about all the time. You know, this is an instance of a fairly big company, IMAX, um, in a market that matters quite a bit to them. But not necessarily one where you'd think that uh, you know the the Chinese government would be heavily involved. You know, it's a storyline that really caught me off guard, and kind of a good reminder that uh, you know the the Chinese government can decide to really support any business that they like to. Right. 
And, you know, just, just to put this into perspective, it is a pretty sizable chunk of uh, IMAX's box office. If you do a comparison, um, IMAX's domestic box office in its most recent quarter was $80 million in box office. And the greater China box office was $60 million, which was about 27% of the company's box office totals. So e even if the state-backed China Film Digital Giant Screen Company um, was able to make, you know, small inroads there, it could definitely cost IMAX in terms of box office. Well, it's uh, probably a good thing to wrap on there. Um, and listeners, just kind of keep a heads out for this. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'm planning on having Danny back on at some point in the future to talk about some Chinese companies that he's been watching. He follows a lot of the tech companies in that space. Uh, and that is companies that are based in China and and have the benefit of, uh, you know, the Chinese government giving them help every every now and then. So look out for that. Anything else before I let you go, Danny? No, I, I rib you a lot about the weather in sunny San Diego, and it is supposed to be 70 today. But I thought I would leave you with, you know, I, I'd throw you a bone here. Um, you know, the last few mornings when I've been out walking the dog at about uh, 515, the temperature out there has been about 42 degrees. So, you know, it's not always sunny in San Diego. You know, we might hit a high of that today. We'll see. <laughs> but you know what? Whatever. I'm, I'm going snowboarding this weekend. So I've got, nice. I've got that going on for me. Um, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're going snowboarding this weekend, shoot us a picture of you doing that. Our producer, Austin Morgan, is an avid snowboarder. Might be planning on going next week. And of course, if you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcast. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Danny Venna, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and fool on. Thank you.